Greetings, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Gareth Mitchell, and welcome to this, the fifth in our podcast series, Exploring Analytical Science. I'm a tech radio presenter and a science communication lecturer, but you know me by now, I'm sure. Anyway, today, we're identifying common cutting agents in latent fingerprints, and we'll meet our guest in just a moment. Uh, but just leading up to that, let me tell you that this podcast series comes from Agilent, a global life sciences company that provides solutions for the analytical lab. And it's also brought to you by Imperial College London, of course, a world-leading institution for scientific research and education. And it must be with the likes of Dr. Trevor Ferris at Imperial. He's in the Department of Chemistry, but is also the manager of the Agilent Measurement Suite. So, Trevor, welcome to the podcast. And let's get to know you a little bit. Can you tell me, just in a few sentences, a little bit about your research? Um, yes, sure. So, as well as managing the Agilent Measurement Suite, I manage a variety of research projects. And some examples include the identification of adulterants in herbal remedies, which has been quite challenging. I worked with specialists from Agilent to obtain some excellent results, and we hope to publish in the near future. I've also been looking at the analysis of therapeutic drugs in the skin, and of course, latent fingerprints for forensic science applications. And this research idea was whether we could detect common cutting agents in latent fingerprints of individuals that have been in contact with common cutting agents. And we want to use a highly sensitive instrument in the Agilent Measurement Suite called a Quadrupole Time of Flight Mass Spectrometer, or QTOF Mass Spectrometer for short. And I'll talk about this instrument a bit later. Right, so we'll get into all those kinds of subject matters. But um, in that long list of activities in which you're involved, we have cutting agents then. So this brings us to drugs of abuse, doesn't it? Can you tell me a bit more about that? Um, well, yes. Drugs of abuse um, have a detrimental effect on both society and the individual, and common cutting agents are often added to drugs of abuse for a variety of reasons, such as increasing the effect of the drug. This can en enhance the user's response, but can also seriously increase health risks. So they're dangerous then, obviously, and common in drugs of abuse. So it's obviously a challenge to identify these cutting agents. And, um, Absolutely. And that which I suppose brings us to latent fingerprints then. So this might be traces of oil or sweats, is it? What, what do we mean more specifically by latent fingerprints? Latent fingerprints itself. So. Yes, indeed. OK, well, there's, um, okay, there's three distinct types of fingerprint impressions that can be recovered from a crime scene or a scene of interest for investigators looking for some clues as to, say, a missing person or for other identification purposes. I'll just talk about the other types of prints first. You have patent prints, which are visible prints that occur when a foreign substance on the skin of a finger comes in contact with the smooth surface of another object. Now, these type of prints tend to leave a distinct ridge impression that is visible with the naked eye without any enhancement of any kind. And they're often sometimes found in blood, ink, oil, or like surfaces such as glass or wooden door frames. And then you go on to plastic prints, these are also impressed prints that occur when a finger touches a soft, malleable type surface, which kind of results in indentation. So, for example, some surfaces that may contain these sort of fingerprints are those that are like freshly painted or coated surfaces. Sometimes surfaces that contain wax, gum or even blood. Now, these sort of substances will soften when handheld and they retain the fingerprints. And these type of prints don't require any enhancements to be viewed. And the type of fingerprints I'm interested in are the actual latent fingerprints, which are fingerprint impressions left on the surface of an object and can be invisible to the naked eye. And these latent fingerprints 
can be made visible by dusting techniques and when the surface is hard by chemical techniques such when the surface is porous. So do you want me to tell you a bit about why people leave laying fingerprints behind? Well, I think that would be fascinating, yes, because when we watch CSI, for instance, you often see them brushing the scene of a crime to look at the fingerprints. So you're really helping me understand why they do that. And then we'll actually bring that together with the cutting agents that we were discussing a few moments ago related to drugs of abuse. So we're going to tie those together. But absolutely, whilst we're still on this subject of latent fingerprints, then tell me a bit more about that. Okay, well, if you look at your fingertips closely, you'll see a row of tiny holes along each friction ridge. Each of these holes is a pore connected to a sweat gland. And the most common type of sweat gland, which is found in virtually all skin, with the highest density on the hands and feet, is the eccrine gland. And you have seven million of these glands, explaining why your hands and feet often feel sweaty. Interestingly, several hundred compounds have been isolated from human sweat. While the primary component of sweat is water, many other substances such as amino acids, salts and lipids are present. And just a few examples of the lipids include fats, oils, waxes and certain vitamins, or also hormones. Most of the non-protein molecules in cell membranes. Actually, interestingly, amino acids found in fingerprints can identify the sex of the person who left the prints. This can be done by looking at the hormone differences between men and women. The differences causes women to have higher levels and slightly different distribution of amino acids in their sweat, which is deposited in fingerprints. And the levels of amino acids in the sweat of females is twice as high as males. So you end up getting a whole host of information from these latent fingerprints. And you mentioned there the amino acids and various other kinds of traces. So if we can relate that back to cutting agents in drugs of abuse, then what kind of clues can we pick up from those as well? That's actually some of my future work. So I'll just talk to you about what the actual cutting agents can tell us first. Sure. So, I mean, the fingerprint samples are an interest in a variety of fields, such as clinical testing, toxicology and forensic science. OK, in forensics, it's been known for a very long time that fingerprints carry more information than only their rich details, which we just talked about. But specifically, at a crime scene, you'd be able to increase the amount of data that could be taken from the crime scene, which may help a law enforcement agency. So this information about the cutting agents in the prints may support a hypothesis of how a crime did or did not occur. It also may open up the possibility of new avenues of investigation. So specifically, in the case of cutting agents, we can show a high level of accuracy that a person has been in contact with common cutting agents Although the common kinases are common and legal, you would not expect the average person to have pure caffeine or lidocaine contained in the prints. Hence, this may list down the possibility of a number of suspects, especially if the prints have been obtained from a crime scene. Um, would you like me to tell you a little bit about some of the common cutting agents available? Well, that would be really interesting. And, and just how we end up with those cutting agents in the latent fingerprints. Yes, please. OK, well, I'll talk to you about so the kinases themselves like I mentioned earlier are often added to drugs for abuse for a variety of reasons, such as increasing the effect of the drug. So it can enhance the user's response, but it can also seriously increase health risks. Some agents are used to mimic the effect of certain common drugs, such as cocaine and heroin. Cutting agents tend to be cheap, and adding an agent to an expensive drug can give a dealer a, lot, a much larger amount of product to sell. You know, and obviously the dealer's not going to disclose the presence of the agents and it's clearly going to sell the drug at a high price. This should be reserved for a pure drug. Again, in the UK, 
There are some very common and easily obtainable cutting agents that have been reported again and again. And these are found in batches of cocaine and heroin that have been seized by various law agencies. I'm just going to give you a few examples. So let's talk about benzocaine. So this is a substance that is typically sold in powdered form, and it's used in a wide number of common everyday products that a person might use for minor pain. Some of the products include cough drops, spray anesthetics, and pain relieving ointments and gels. They work on substance when the substance works when it's in contact, and it helps to narrow blood vessels, which reduces the sensation of pain. In this way, benzocaine behaves much like cocaine. It also has a similar appearance, and like the drug, it works in the same way. And you know, many batches have been reported and seized by various agencies to have been found to be a mixture of cocaine and benzocaine with almost a one-to-one -one ratio, meaning that the cocaine people buy is only about half pure. And related to this is something called lidocaine, and it is another pain-killing medication that is often sold in a powdered form. People can apply it topically by putting it directly on a sore spot for instant pain relief, and it's often used as a bulking agent due to its look-alike qualities, but it's also a good choice because people can be fooled with a taste test. Now, this is, looked at, this is seen in many films when people taste the purity of cocaine by putting a little on their tongue. And when people put cocaine mixed with lidocaine on the tongue, it goes numb. People use that to, as a known trait to test, quickly test the purity, but it's not very accurate, my ads. So lidocaine can fool those testers, which makes it an ideal cutting agent. And um, I'll give you one more example, which is, uh, okay, caffeine. So when you think about caffeine, you think about the brown grounds that make coffee, but it's not the same substance. Caffeine is actually the powdered form of the element that gives coffee its kick, and it can be found in vitamin shops and online bodybuilding stores. Pure caffeine can help you um, feel invigorated, and it also looks like powdered cocaine or heroin. Also, another interesting fact, when caffeine is mixed with heroin, it's been reported that heroin vaporizes at a lower rate. This could allow users to take the drug faster and get higher sooner. Right, so you mentioned a couple of those cutting agents there. And relating them to fingerprints, is it as simple as somebody might be preparing some drugs of abuse uh, for sale and then they're also involved with uh, a scene of a crime, forensic officers turn up and try to detect their fingerprints? Is it just that they have the traces of the caffeine or the benzocaine on their fingerprints or has it somehow got into their bodies and they're excreting it in some oh, way? How does that come I, about? I was going to talk to you a bit about that later. So basically, that's quite interesting. So yes, when you're in contact, say you're in contact with cocaine, it's going to be different than if you've taken cocaine because you, you have something called a metabolite. So the cocaine's broken down and it will come through your finger pores as a metabolite, which is not the same as cocaine. So you can actually, some research has been done to determine whether you've taken it or just touched it or both. So in a nutshell, yes, it'd be interesting if you have a fingerprint and you take it, you've identified a suspect, but you've also identified cutting agents. Instead of the fingerprint just going, oh, I was just in that room, you can just say they were in that room, but they were also cutting drugs. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. And so as evidence, that is absolutely crucial. So the challenge is detecting these cutting agents and the other traces that you mentioned in fingerprints that might be picked up at a crime scene. So tell me a bit about maybe the mass spectrometry, maybe how the Agilent measurement suite might be playing here then. Let's go a little bit into the detection. Okay, so 
basically, we want to investigate the possibility of whether it's possible to detect the common cutting edge in layer fingerprints using something called electrospray quadrupole time of flight mass spectrometry. I'll talk about the mass spectrometry part a little bit later. But so firstly, once the layer fingerprints have been dissolved in a solvent, OK, this was then filtered before the samples were analysed by the QTOF mass spectrometer. But firstly, they're inje injected into another instrument commonly called UHPLC, which stands for Ultra High Performance Liquid Chromatography. Now, this is done to separate out the components in the sample of interest so that all of these components are not injected into the QTOF at the same time. UHPLC itself is a variant on HPLC, which is High Performance Liquid Chromatography. UHPLC uses columns. These are the columns that actually part that separates the components. And in, in these, it has particles of sizes less than two micrometers. But in HPLC, you have bigger particles between three and five micrometers. And that's in classical HPLC. But the good thing about the small particle sizes in UHPLC results in having very small columns, which shortens the analysis time. So therefore, you can get more samples done. So basically, liquid chromatography, or LC, is an analytical technique used to separate, identify, or quantify each component in a mixture. The mixture is separated using the basic principle of column chromatography, then identified or quantified by spectroscopy. A computer analyzes the data and it is shown on output display. UHPLC and HPLC are improved forms of chromatography, and they work by having a solvent, which is called the mobile phase, which is pumped to the column at a specific flow rate. A sample is placed into the auto sampler as, and then is injected into the continuously flowing mobile phase stream that carries the sample to the UHPLC column. The time required for the mixture of the component to travel through the column and to a detector to display a maximum peak height for the compound is known as the retention time. And this retention time depends on pressure, temperature, the nature of the stationary phase, and the composition of the solvent. The components of the sample pass out the column as they're, and they're detected. There are a variety of methods to, to detect these, and a common method is UV light, but a more sophisticated method is mass spectrometry. So basically, we have a latent print that's been in contact with a cutting agent and deposited elsewhere. It's been dissolved in an appropriate solvent, and the UHPLC has separated all the components contained in the sample. Now the components are ready to be introduced into the QTOF mass spectrometer. Now, the QTOF mass spectrometer analyzes ions of different mass to charge ratios. And I decided to use the QTOF mass spectrometer as it has some advantages over another instrument called a triple quadrupole mass spectrometer. So for the same mass range, a QTOF mass spectrometer will measure each ion more sensitively. And since all ions are included in the simultaneous full spectrum scan, no important information is missed or discarded. So basically you can come back and look at the data at a later date to, if you've got another idea of stuff to investigate. So how this works is once the sample arrives in the UHPLC after being separated, it's still in the mobile phase, which is in a solvent or mixture of solvents. So mass spectrometers use electromagnetic fields to accelerate the ions. This effect only occurs if the species are charged as the field will not accelerate a neutral particle. So the instrument uses something called electrospray ionization or ESI. This produces ions using electrospray, which are high voltages applied to a liquid to create an aerosol. The solution is sprayed through a highly charged 
needle called an ESI capillary. Charged droplets are produced from the sample and can either be positively or negatively charged. These charged ions next pass through a quadrupole mass analyzer, which is basically a mass filter. So only ions with a specific mass to charge ratio will be allowed through. So the instrument can be set so that some ions have a stable trajectory through the quadrupole and, and some don't end up and they become ejected. So the ions that have passed through the quadrupole now go to the mass analyzer. This separates ions based on their velocity as they travel through the flight region, often called the flight tube. Now I can understand this is very technical and confusing. So I'm going to compare this to a measure to this measurement to a race. Basically, you have a group of ions is accelerated by something called an extractor. Now you can compare this to a start of a race. This caused them to drift through the flight tube, and you can actually compare this to a race course. And the detector is the finish line. So the time that's passed between the extractor and collision line is recorded, so between the start and the finish of a race. So a molecule of a large mass should travel more slowly than a molecule of a small mass. So time elapsed would indicate the molar mass. And a computer used the data to produce a mass spectrum. This shows the mass to charge ratio and abundance of each ion that reached the detector. And given that all ions produced by electroionization, and most of the ions by electron ionization have a one plus charge, the mass to charge ratio is effectively the mass to ion. So without the instruments that Adjunct have kindly provided, this research project and many others would not be possible. This alongside the fact there are so many different instruments in the Adjunct measurement suite near each other, allows research projects to progress rapidly. Yeah, I absolutely get it. So you have the chromatography and then you really walked us through or raced us through to use your analogy oh, through the whole process. And so you end up with a mass spectrum in the end. And so are we talking about mass spectrometry, that phase of the analysis? Is that in both positive and negative modes or one of um, each? You, you tend to run them both in positive and negative, although some compounds such as aspirin prefer to be, you'll get a better spectrum if you look at it in a negative mode. So you basically run them both in positive and negative and then see what information you've got. So, I mean, you've really walked us through that. What what are the, the big benefits of that? You've already mentioned that it's all under one roof at the AMS, which is a huge help, especially in this kind of work. So in terms of that mass spec technique, are, are there specific benefits, maybe in terms of resolution, accuracy, speed, throughput? Why is it good? Um, well, the QTOF itself, so the high resolution, so it gives you accuracy in four decimal places. So wow. because a lot of compounds, especially biological fluids, weigh very close to each other, this can actually allow you to separate them out. So four decimal places is amazing, whereas the QTOF isn't that, hasn't got that specificity. And another amazing thing about the QTOF is once you've run a spectra, even if you're not looking at particular data, you can come back in 10 years time and then look for more information. So basically, I've got all the information contained in a fingerprint. And at the moment, I'm only looking at cutting agents, but I could be looking at so many different things and come back in the future when I've got new research ideas and, and go back to that data. So, yeah, it's quite amazing. Yeah, or maybe even mass spectrometry techniques have advanced. You know, you still have that raw data. You can go back and reanalyze it at will. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it, a little bit like um, I'm thinking if you've got vintage Beatles albums on the multi-tracks, for instance, you know, and then you can <laughs> maybe yes. revisit them years later. Yes, and that's an excellent comparison, yeah. Definitely. Discover amazing things about George Harrison's playing. So um, <laughs> yeah. always nice to sneak a musical reference in when we can. Um, I mean, 
this is absolutely fascinating. You've touched on the future then. You know, you you have the, the print, you have the data, you can unlock lots of insights as time goes on. So I wanted to ask you really where we're going as time goes on. What are your next projects? Where do you see all this going for you? Okay, so um, I want to expand the Kang agents in latent fingerprint projects a lot further. So as I said earlier, latent fingerprints are often visualized a range of powders. So they, these powders include black granular, aluminium flake, black magnetic. They're just a few of the common ones. They can also be visualized by with chemical developers. And porous surfaces such as paper are typically processed with chemicals, including in hydrogen and physical developer to reveal latent fingerprints. So these chemicals react with specific components of latent print residue, such as amino acids and inorganic salts. And you may have seen this, but nin hydrogen causes prints to turn a purple color, which makes them easy photographed. So I would like to investigate how visualization methods can affect our detection of bulking agents in latent prints. But to be honest with you, I don't suspect it's going to have much of an effect, but it's going to be interesting nonetheless. I'd also like to investigate um, the effect of the lifting tapes, which are used to recover trace evidence itself in the field of forensic science. And I'd also want to quantify the amount of cutting agent found in latent fingerprints. I think this will also be important. But secondly, the Agent QTOF has allowed the gathering of many other components, like I mentioned earlier, of fingerprints that could have a variety of applications. So I have a lot of data that can be analysed at a later date, which is one of the great things about time of flight mass spectrometry. So the latent prints as I mentioned contain metabolites, and metabolites are byproduct of the body breaking down or metabolizing a drug or compound into a different substance. So the process of metabolizing a drug is predictable and certain. It'd be great to investigate whether we can discriminate whether a person has been in contact with certain drugs or ingested certain drugs. Researchers have already been able to do this with cocaine and detect metabolites in latent fingerprints of someone who's actually ingested the cocaine. Also, you can find out a lot about a person's lifestyle through analyzing the chemical components found in a person's print. And researchers have been looking at whether a person has been in contact with certain sunscreens, have they been drinking alcohol, which type of alcohol, have they been in contact with certain fruits and vegetables, all through the analysis of latent prints. So we know that all the residues that are found in latent fingerprints are controlled by metabolic processes in the body that fluctuate depending on a person's biological sex, age, and other factors. Now, I really want to investigate detection of diseases and health of a person through excretions found in latent fingerprints. And I think this will have many exciting applications. Well, it's a, an exciting field, certainly. And just as we draw to a close, I can't ask you, this is such an immature question, but I don't know if you watch a lot of the police procedurals or the CSIs and so on, and whether you sit there yelling back at the TV, they don't do mass spec like that in real life, then can you actually relax when you watch these crime shows, if you watch them? No, no, I can't. I wish it was that simple. You could just put stuff in and press a button, but <laughs> the groundwork takes so long. I mean, for every cutting agent, you need to have a standard. You need to make sure the standard has the same retention time, fragmentation patterns and mass. So it's I wish it was like that, kind of like Star Trek, where they just analyze it with a tricorder. I would love that, but we're not there yet, I'm afraid. Yeah, give it another 10 years, yeah. maybe a bit longer. <laughs> maybe a bit longer. <laughs> Watch this space. 
Trevor Ferris, Dr. Trevor Ferris, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. That's uh, Trevor Ferris, manager of the Agilent Measurement Suite, and he's in the chemistry department at Imperial. Thank you so much for listening, folks. And uh, do come back next time. We'll be discussing oligonucleotide-based drug delivery in immune and genetic diseases. Lots to get into. I'm Gareth Mitchell, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>